Good morning to everyone. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. And as you are turning there, I want to make three statements. Actually, uh, three quotations. And the third will bring us to our text in the book of Romans, namely chapter 2. So you find your way there. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one under the chair scattered throughout the auditorium. We'll get there in just a moment. I want to begin by making three statements. The third will get us uh, to our text for today in Romans chapter 2. Statement number one is this, uh, from Richard Baxter, lived a long time ago in England. It is a very hard thing for me to write or preach to a specific group of people without other people misapplying it to themselves. That's profound. It's profound. It's helped me a lot over the years. It is a very hard thing for me to write or preach to a specific group of people without other people misapplying it to themselves. That is particularly true when it comes to the doctrine of assurance. I'll repeat it. That is particularly true when it comes to the doctrine of assurance. Why? The presumptuous will often misapply the doctrine of assurance to their comfort, and the overly sensitive will often misapply it to their discomfort. And so it is very difficult to preach to one group, target one group, when it comes to the doctrine of assurance in particular, without another group, another individual, misapplying it to themselves and making a downright mess of it. How? What is the doctrine of assurance? How does it apply to these two groups, the presumptuous and the overly sensitive? Why is it both a comforting and a challenging doctrine? Did you get all that? You got all those questions? Well, I say all that to announce again our upcoming conference. Joel already mentioned it. August 22nd and 23rd, here at Grace Community Church, delighting in the Doctrine of Assurance. It's going to be on the Friday evening, a couple sessions on the Friday evening, Saturday morning, early Saturday afternoon. We're going to look at this doctrine pastorally. So how does it apply to us? We're going to look at this doctrine a little polemically, a little bit of polemics, mix it up a little bit. And we're going to look at it historically and wrestle through what Scripture says concerning the doctrine of assurance, and in particular, how it applies to the presumptuous, and how it applies to the overly sensitive. And so Mark Jones is coming in. He's a pastor in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, Josh Moody, he's a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois. Stephen Uli, he's from the center of the universe, Glen Rose, Texas. And uh, the three of us will converge here. And we're going to wrestle with this, with this topic. We're pressing this and we're pressing it now, pushing it now, because we want to get a good handle on numbers, how many to expect. So many of you have filled in the form already. You know it's for anybody here. It's free. We're covering the cost as a church. And so if you have not done so already, get one of those forms. They're in the foyer. They were in the bulletins a couple of Sundays ago. Ask Rick, ask me, ask Brian, fill it out especially if you plan to bring children and you want child care. We need to get that organized now 
It's going to be of no use to us at all on Thursday evening if you decide to sign up and say, I'm bringing four kids with me. That's going to put us in a tough spot. So we need to get a handle on this now. So to quote Ike Thomas, who I've heard say this on a couple of occasions, get her done. Just get her done. Get that form, fill it out, and submit it. I encourage you to do that. I trust the Lord will bless this time together, this conference, uh, to all of us. And so be in prayer for that. Second statement I want to share with you. All quotations. This is from Thomas Manton. He, too, lived a long time ago. He wrote the following. I've been reading a lot of Manton of late, and this little quote caught my attention. We taste things better when we chew them than when we swallow them whole. Do I need to explain that? Everybody get it? We taste things better when we chew them rather than swallow them whole. I grilled a nice steak yesterday at home, and we were sitting there enjoying it for dinner, and our dog was going ballistic, as she's inclined to do, by the dinner table, wanting her share, and so it was a piece of gristle or something I threw to her. She didn't even bite. No chewing, nothing. Just straight down her throat. I'm thinking to myself, how did you enjoy that? What was the point in that? Nothing more for you, you wee beastie, you crazy animal. Can't even enjoy, can't even appreciate this steak. We appreciate, we savor things when we chew them rather than when we swallow them whole. Thomas Manton was talking about sermons. He was talking about sermons. We enjoy, we savor, we taste sermons better when we chew them than when we swallow them whole. whole. In other words, let me submit to you that if you think your work is done here at noon on a Sunday, you have completely missed the boat. Completely. (laughs) Completely missed the boat. Uh, The intent of the proclamation of God's word is to address people in a specific place at a specific moment with the help of the Spirit of God. And it is to give and impart to God's people truths and lessons and principles that they can then chew on during the week. Thomas Manton, same author, he wrote the following, Meditation is the mother of all godliness. I think we know what he meant by that. Meditation is the mother of all godliness. Why? It fastens truth upon the heart, thereby strengthening our faith, enlivening our hope, and inflaming our love. And so I encourage you, if you are not in the habit, in the bulletin, there are sermon notes. Make use of them. And during the week, we don't need to regurgitate the sermon in its entirety, but certainly latch on to a truth or two or three. And seek to internalize those truths. Seek to make them your own. And prove Manton's assertion that we taste things better when we chew them than when we swallow them whole. Third statement is this, from John Newton. The goal of preaching is to break a hard heart and to heal a broken heart. That's it. In one sentence, he got it right. The goal of preaching is to break a hard heart, soften a hard heart, and to heal a broken heart. Let me state it in slightly different terms. The goal of preaching 
is to convict the comfortable sinner and comfort the convicted sinner, or in slightly different terms. The goal of preaching is to disturb the comfortable, and it is to comfort the disturbed. That is exactly, this brings us now this third quotation, this third statement, it brings us to our text. And it brings us in particular to Romans chapter 1, this first section in this epistle, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. Because in this section, and I trust this has been evident to you, and I trust this has been reflected in my preaching, Paul's goal is to disturb the comfortable. That's it. Paul's goal is to get after the comfortable sinner. His goal is to break, decimate, destroy, level to the ground the comfortable sinner. That is the hard heart. His goal is to soften it. From chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Why? So that we fully appreciate his assertion in chapter 1, verse 17, which is what? The just shall live by faith. There's the comfort. There is the comfort to the disturbed sinner. There is the comfort, the the, the healing extended, offered to the broken heart. But we only receive it. We only benefit from it. We only enjoy it. We only bathe in it. Commensurate to what? Our own poverty of spirit and our understanding of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and why it is absolutely essential that we live by faith in him and in him alone. And so that's what Paul is doing in this section. In our verses, we've been in them for a few weeks now, chapter 2, the verse 16 verses, within that subset of the comfortable sinner, he has one particular individual in view. He is thinking of that man. He is thinking of that woman who dares to presume that God's judgment is most certainly for others, but not for him, not for her. That individual who dares to think that for some reason conceived in their own minds, they do not deserve God's judgment. Oh, they might deserve it, but certainly not to the extent as other people do. In other words, he is addressing people here. He's trying to awaken them. He is trying to shake them. He is trying to startle them from their slumber. He is addressing those people for whom there is a gulf. There is a huge disconnect between reality and their perception of reality. A huge disconnect between what they really are and what they actually think they are. And he is trying to disturb them. He is trying to unsettle them. He is trying to break the hard heart of a presumptuous sinner who assumes for some uncanny reason that he will escape the judgment of God. Follow along with me now. That sets the context. As we pick it up in verse 6, we consider verses 6 through 11 last Sunday. Our business today is verses 12 through 16. But I want to read from verse 6 so that we capture again Paul's thought flow. He, first word, refers back to whom in the preceding verse? God, obviously. God will render to each one according to his works. 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so again, in case you missed it three minutes ago, he has a specific audience in view. He's after someone here. He's like a hound on the trail of a deer or a rabbit, and he will not let go. He is after this individual. The individual who dares to presume that all is well with the soul. God's judgment, yes, but it's reserved for those really bad people. And well, God's going to judge on a curve. And when it comes to judging on a curve, I'll do okay. Isn't that what grace is all about anyway? He's after that person. He brings that person before the tribunal of God. And he lays before that individual a number of facts concerning God's judgment. There they are in the sermon notes. I've listed them again there for you. Fact number one, God's judgment is fair. We see it in verse one. Fact number two, God's judgment is inescapable, verses two and three. Fact number three, God's judgment is delayed. It's delayed for a purpose, to cultivate repentance in us, verse number four. Fact number four, God's judgment is accumulative. It's like the water gathering in the storm behind the dam. And the day will come when the dam gives way and the water will surge forth. Facts 1, 2, 3, 4. If I'm not mistaken, we considered these three Sundays ago or so. Fact number five. God's judgment is impartial. Verses 6 through 11. This is what we looked at last Lord's Day. I'm not making up the words. I've extracted them right from Paul's writing. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. And so God's judgment is impartial. That word partiality is fascinating because in the original language, here's a little grammar lesson, it's actually what we call a compound word. A compound word is when we take two different words and we shove them together. We ram them together to create a new word. And so this word in the original is a compound word. It consists of one word, which means to take, to take, okay? It consists of another word, which means your face. Well, that makes a lot of sense. 
take those two words together and get this word partiality, to take face, to take face. What does it mean? To take notice of one's face. God shows no partiality. In other words, what? He doesn't take anyone's face into consideration. He is not impressed with externals. He is not impressed by our exterior. He is not impressed by the external facade. Whether an individual is openly, blatantly immoral or secretly immoral, God is impartial. Whether an individual is openly, blatantly, strikingly, obviously sinful or merely inwardly sinful, it makes no difference to God. He is impartial. And what does Paul say in the 11th verse? Because God is impartial, here's what he's going to do. He's going to render to each one according to his works. And so whether it be that individual engaged in moral debauchery as described in chapter 1, or this individual here now that he has in view who's characterized by moral hypocrisy, whether, whether it's that individual who from all appearances looks bad, or that individual who from all appearances looks good, it makes no difference. God is impartial. He's going to judge one according to their works. And then in between those two verses, that is through verse 6 and verse 11, Paul makes this distinction clear. And he identifies three distinguishing marks between two groups. He says, look, okay, here are two groups of people. And you, and you fit into one, or you're, you're either in one or you're the other. Here are two kinds of people, two categories. There is no third, fourth, fifth category. There's no subset, part A, part B, part C. You're here or you're here. Group one, group two. These individuals, they have different destinies, these two groups. And so we have one group over here, their destiny is life. And we have another group over here, their destiny is death. I could put it in slightly different terms. The destiny of group number one is heaven. The destiny of group number two is hell. Slightly different terms. The destiny of group number one is what? Glory. The life of God, immortality. And the destiny of group number two is what? It is the wrath of God. It is tribulation. It is judgment. It is condemnation. So we have these two groups with two very different destinies. These destinies are determined by what? It's the second distinguishing mark. Very different works. Very different works. Very different deeds. And so here Paul distinguishes between good and evil. And so group number one over here, their destiny is life. And their works are characterized by what? Or marked by what? Or labeled as what? Good. Group number two over here, their destiny is destruction. It's death. It's God's wrath. It's tribulation. It's judgment. It's condemnation. It's hell. And their works are marked by what? Categorized as what? Viewed as what? Evil. But it does not stop there. Paul then introduces a third distinguishing mark between these two groups. Two different destinies, life, death. Two different, different in their works, right? Good and evil. And different in their desires. They have different desires. Because just as one's destiny is determined by one's works, One's works is determined by one's desire. And so we have over here group number one, their destiny is life because their works are good. Their works are good, why? Because their desire is what? God-seeking. They seek after the glory of God. They seek after the honor of God. They seek after the life of God. Whereas in this second group, their destiny is what? It's death. Destruction, eternal destruction, hell. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Why? Because their desires are self 
seeking. Two very different groups of people. The destiny determined by their works, their works determined by their desires. Here's what must not, cannot escape our notice. Their works from our perspective. Their works for all intents and purposes as we look on might actually look the same. It is not the deed in and of itself that Paul is primarily concerned with here. It is the desire from which the deed flows. So when we speak of evil deeds, evil works, we have no problem. Well, there's an individual who just murders someone. Well, that's evil. Okay, we get that. There's an individual who did something heinous, indescribable. I can't even mention it here publicly. Evil. Well, we get that. That's not Paul's primary point here. Remember, he is speaking to the moral hypocrite. His principal point is this, that even those deeds we do that have an appearance of being good, those deeds, whether they are actually good or evil in God's sight, are determined by the desire from which those deeds flow. Do you get it? This is the doctrine of total depravity. We're getting to the essence here of the doctrine, the truth of radical depravity. You imagine a stream. Think of a stream. There you are with your fishing pole in the water, and uh, the water looks pretty good, a few fish swimming around. You take a drink, looks good, smells pretty good, everything's good. A mile upstream, there's a herd of cows gathered together in that stream, doing their business. Do I need to add any more details? You get the picture, right? They do that every day, mile upstream. Herd of 1,000 cows just right there in the stream. Disgusting. Two miles upstream, there's a factory. No controls. There are emissions, no emission controls. They're dumping everything in the stream. Heavy metals, chemicals, whatever comes, whatever they're burning, whatever they're doing, just straight into the stream. There you are two miles downstream with your fishing pole in the water. A couple fish floating by. Well, they died of old age. It doesn't catch your attention. You don't get it. It smells pretty good. It tastes pretty good. Guess what, my friend? It isn't pretty good. That water is what? No matter what it looks like, it might look good. It might smell good. It might taste good. But guess what? It is polluted at its source. That is our problem. That is Paul's point in this text. We can be as good as we like externally in the eyes of men. Whether that is determined good in the sight of Almighty God is determined for one reason, one factor alone. The reason, the desire from which it flows. Here is our fundamental problem. By nature, we are self-seeking. By nature, we are self-loving. By nature, we are selfish. That principle deep within us that resides in each and every one of us corrupts everything we think, everything we say, everything we do no matter how good it might appear in the eyes of others. Do we get it? That is Paul's point here. 
And so Paul says to this group, reality check, and you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And you think as you point your crooked finger at that individual over there and sit in judgment on them, and rightly so, what they have done is horrendous, what they have done is contrary to God's law, what they have done is unspeakable, what they have done is sin. But as you point the finger in condemnation, thinking that for some reason you escape God's condemnation, or you think you're not as deserving of God's condemnation, do you really think you're going to escape God's judgment when you factor in the basis upon which God will judge you? Yes, it will be your deeds, but it will be the deeds, whether they are good or evil, determined by the desires from which they flow. That's why later in, Paul, in chapter 3, Paul's going to sum it up as follows. There is none good. No, not one. And so what do we need? We need a radical transformation of the heart. We need regeneration. We need a miracle on par with God's creation of the entire cosmos. We need God's creative power operative in us, whereby he causes us to be born again. He implants in us a new principle. He implants in us a new heart. He awakens, he enlightens that darkened understanding. He liberates that enslaved heart and will, whereby by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live unto him. His grace operative in us, whereby he produces in us those works for which he is going to judge us according to our works, but works which are not our own merit. They're not actually something we're doing in our own strength, but they are simply the fruit, the demonstration of God's grace working in us. So I'm not even going to stand there on the judgment day and say, well, look what I did as a Christian. If I do that, I've missed the boat completely. No, it's going to be all to you, Lord. Because as our deeds are deemed good in his sight, they are deemed good because they are now done out of a desire of his glory, out of an expression of love for him. But it is his grace operative in us, producing those deeds, producing those works. And that's where Paul is going here in this text. Differentiating between these two groups. Helping these people in particular to understand that God is impartial. I don't care how impressed you are with yourself. I think that's what Paul could have said if you were writing it today. I really don't care how impressed you are with yourself. God is not impressed because the problem is fundamental. There's a problem at the source. There's a problem at the fountain. There's a problem at the root. There's a problem at the foundation. And no matter what the exterior might look like, however good it might look in the eyes of man, however laudable it might appear in the eyes of society, it is in the eyes of God corrupt, worthless to him, of no merit before him. And it necessitates what? As I've said before, a radical new birth, regeneration. Now, Paul is not stopped. That doesn't stop here. He's introduced that concept in verse 11. God shows no partiality. He sticks with it in our text, verses 12 through 16. He shifts gears a little bit. He applies it in a slightly different way. I glanced over, just moved over a phrase last week. I didn't even mention it, only as I read the text, and then just completely dropped it from the sermon. I wonder if anybody caught that phrase. It's mentioned twice. First at the end of verse 9. The Jew first, and also the Greek. Secondly, the end of verse 10. 
the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Not the first time he's used this phrase. He introduced it back in chapter 1, verse 16. Not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so now here he's honing in on this fact that there are two groups of people in his day, nationally, ethnically. You have over here the Jews, and you have over here the Greeks, synonymous with the Gentiles. This is how the Jews viewed things. not how a Greek would have viewed things, though there's two categories of people, Greeks and Jews, but it's certainly how Jews viewed things. They viewed this in terms of their history, going all the way back to Genesis 11, Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. They understood humanity has been divided into these two categories. The two, never the twain shall meet. You have the Jews over here, and you have the Gentiles over here. And Paul now, he, he, he jumps on this idea... And he builds on this notion that with God there is no partiality. And he demonstrates, you know, this applies even when it comes to Jews and Gentiles, the difference between the two. Because if there's any group walking the earth that is rather smug, this is Paul's thinking here. If there's any group walking the face of the earth that has an overly inflated opinion of themselves, if there's any group walking the face of the earth who looks down on others, in particular the Gentiles, it's the Jews. And I've got them. Yes, I have, I have those moral hypocrites, Gentiles in view as well, but this also applies to the, the Jews who think simply because they have the law, simply because they're circumcised, simply because Abraham is their physical father, their physical descendant, simply because they have the temple, simply because they possess the oracles of God, simply because they are set apart under this national covenant, they assume far too much. They assume all is well with the soul. They assume that those people whom Paul has condemned in chapter 1, well, there he is obviously referencing the Gentiles, not us. He's obviously speaking of everyone who's non-Jewish, not us. Here Paul simply says this, think again. With God there is no partiality, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. He brings his point home in the 12th verse, for all, the words are tricky, pay attention, for all who have sinned, here's the first category of people, Without the law. Okay, so you have people over here. They've sinned, but they've done so without the law. They're going to perish. How? Without the law. You got that? You got a group over here. It's the Gentiles. They have sinned. They've done so without the law. We'll get to that in a moment. They're going to perish without the law. Now he shifts to a second group over here. And all who have sinned, they've sinned too, but they've sinned under the law. They will be judged by the law. With God, there is no partiality. Jew, Greek, Jew, Gentile, it makes no difference. You've got the Jews, you've got the Gentiles over, the Jews over here. They have sinned under the law. They're going to be judged by the law. You have the Gentiles over here. They have sinned without the law, and they are going to perish without the law. Well, how's that fair? How does that make God impartial? What does he mean? Paul expands on it. He explains. And so in verse 13, he handles one of those categories. He hones in on the Jews. Those who sinned under the law and demonstrates and proves that they will be judged by the law. Look at what he says in the 13th verse. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so here are the Jews here. They're under the law. It's the law. God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. Uh, God gave them the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote them, the Pentateuch. And within all that, we have the law, his moral law, as summed up in the commandments. Look, the Jews, they have that law. They know God's will. They have the revelation of God's holiness. They have the revelation of God's righteousness. They have his law. They've sinned under that law, and they're going to be judged under that law. You see, it's the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, they don't do the law. No one can do the law. 
No one can obey the law perfectly because the law was never even given as a ladder to heaven. The law was given to show man's, God's holiness, God's righteousness, man's unholiness, man's unrighteousness, and to drive man to God through the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They, missed, they, they completely missed it, completely misunderstood. They took that law and they thought, here, I've got a ladder to heaven. Well, no, it's the doers of the law who will justify. They don't do the law, and so they're under that law. It is actually going to condemn them, and God is going to judge them according to that law. That's the second group. The first group, the Gentiles. They've sinned without the law. Well, they never had the law. They weren't, part of, they weren't anywhere near Sinai. Those commandments weren't given to them. Covenant was never made with them. They never even had the scriptures. But yet they've sinned without that law. That is, without the law written on tablets, right? They've sinned without it, but guess what? They're going to perish without it. They'll still be judged without it. They'll be condemned without it. Well, how's that fair? How does that work? Well, Paul addresses that in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have that law written on tablets, wasn't given to them, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So they don't have that written law, that oracle, that revelation given to the Jews. But when they do by nature what that law actually says, they demonstrate that there is something working in them internally. He expands on it in verse 15. They show, here's what they show, that the work of the law So that is that written law, those Ten Commandments in particular. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so when without nature, by nature, without any regard for the written law, Gentiles, those who don't have the law, actually do what the law requires or actually seem to know the difference between vice and virtue, evil and good, actually pass laws within societies or by a government that actually kind of reflect that law written on tablets. When all of that happens, what is it demonstrating? It is demonstrating that that same law, although they do not have it written on tablets, they actually have it written on their hearts because God himself has put it there. And so the Jews, they've sinned under the law. Well, they'll be judged according to that law. The Gentiles, they've sinned without the law. Oh, but they have the law written on their hearts, and God will judge them by that law, which they themselves know to be true in the inner man, the inner being. And so look what he says in verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God gets in there, God sheds infinite light, and he judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, these are important verses. A little anticlimactic, but important verses. They, when we give them the, the, the attention they deserve and squeeze them a little, we find that they articulate some Wonderful truths, several important truths. I've compiled seven, seven. And I've taken a glance without you noticing at my watch, and I've realized that getting through all seven is going to be unbelievably ambitious today. 
Let me try to get through the first three, and then I will skip one or two or three, and then end up with number seven. We'll see how it goes. So for all you note-takers, just relax, breathe easy. At some point, if you're just right there with the notes, I'm going to skip something. We'll make it up next Lord's Day. But seven reasons I've compiled as to why what Paul is saying here, what he's driving home is extremely important. Here's reason number one. The revelation of God is clear and constant, yet willfully suppressed. We've heard that on innumerable occasions in our study in Romans because Paul has emphasized it throughout. Let me repeat it. The revelation of God, so God's revelation of himself, is clear and constant, yet willfully suppressed. That is why all people, all places, at all times are without excuse. Look at what Paul said back in verse 19 of chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So everyone knows the truth of God. Everyone knows the truth of God. Look at secondly, still in chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's decree, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so people, man knows inherently because God himself has put it there, this knowledge. Man knows the truth of God. Secondly, man knows the decree of God, that judgment is coming. And thirdly, man knows the law of God. That's Paul's point in verse 15 of our text. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The revelation of God is clear and constant. The truth of God, the decree of God, and the law of God. The problem, man's problem, please, 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 is not a lack of information. It's not. Man's basic fundamental problem, whether he lives here in the United States of America, somewhere in Europe, somewhere on the continent of Africa, somewhere in the Brazil, in the Amazon, man's basic problem is not a lack of information. He's got three things going for him. He knows the truth of God because God himself reveals himself through creation. He knows the decree of God that judgment is coming. And he knows the law of God. It is written in his heart. Here is man's fundamental problem. He doesn't like what he knows. And so he willfully suppresses it. And that's Paul's charge in this section, isn't it? Therefore, all are without excuse. Because all willfully suppress what they know to be true. Lesson number two, truth number two. The law of God is mighty to condemn, but powerless to save. Comes out of verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are justified before God. So it's not simply hearing the law. It's not simply knowing the the law. Here here are those who will be justified. I think Paul is speaking sarcastically here, hypothetically. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. You can almost have put in there, good luck with that. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. You you think simply because you've got the law. You you think simply because you know the difference between good and evil. You think simply because you've got these oracles, the revelation, you're part of of the nation of Israel, you're you're, you're the Jews. This this is the the group he specifically got in view here. You think simply by virtue of your birth and the fact that you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that somehow this inclines you to something. 
No, 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 no. It's not simply having the law. It's not simply knowing the law. It's not simply trying your best when it comes to the law. It's not simply a question of, oh, how sincere are you or insincere are you? No, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. My friend, you do not do the law. Oh, please. You don't come close to doing the law. First, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. Christ himself sums it up. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Tenth commandment. You shall not covet. Lord Jesus sums it up, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who here would ever claim to do that perfectly? All places, all times, every thought, every word, every action, simply an expression, my entire life, an expression of my unchallenged, unrivaled love for God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my love for my neighbor. I would be delusional to claim such a thing. That is what Paul is saying here. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. You cannot be justified by the law, and the law was not given to justify you. Oh, the law is good, it is holy, it is pure, it is perfect, and it condemns you through and through because it reveals the righteousness of God, reveals your unrighteousness, reveals the chasm that exists, and revealing the chasm that exists between you and God, it forces you to look for help outside of yourself. It forces you to look for a Savior. It forces you to rest on one who has fulfilled that law, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That's point number two. The law of God is mighty to condemn, but powerless to save. Point number three. The conscience testifies to the existence of God. Fourteenth verse. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The conscience testifies to the existence of God. We've gone down this road once or twice already in our study of Romans. Let's go down it again. The young man, old man, young woman, old woman, comes to me and says, Stephen, here's my problem. I don't believe in God. And here's the reason I, I don't believe in God. And this is popular today, very common today. Here's the reason. It's because there's so much bad stuff going on in the world. So much evil, so much suffering, so much anguish, so much sorrow. And if God existed, and if God were powerful, and if God were good, this wouldn't be going on. And therefore, ergo, here's my conclusion, my logic, The fact that there is such evil, therefore, means I cannot reasonably believe in God. When that happens, and it happens occasionally, I sit there, and I look the person in the eye, and I don't know where to go with that. Here's why I don't know where to go with that. I don't understand what you're saying. You've just contradicted yourself. Which is it? Do you believe in God or do you not believe in God? You say you do not believe in God. And yet, with tears in your eyes, you've spoken of evil. You've spoken of suffering. You've spoken of right and wrong. So you said there is no God. Well, if there is no God, we're grown-up germs. Those things don't exist. The fact that you acknowledge they do exist The fact that you acknowledge inherently 
There are such categories as good and evil, right and wrong. There's such a thing as suffering. You know what you're saying to me? You do believe in God. So I sit there with a blank look on my face. What do you want me to say? Do you believe in God or don't you believe in God? You can't have it both ways. To describe something as good or evil is to declare that the law is written on your heart. To declare that the law is written on your heart is to declare that the moral law exists. To declare that moral law exists is to declare that God exists. If God didn't exist, you wouldn't be talking about good or evil. Do you understand that? The conscience Despite what men and women might say, and we hear it all the time, whether it be some great philosopher or um, some well-known skeptic when it comes to Christianity, whether it be those who are secular humanists, and now whether it be agnostics or atheists, we hear it time and time and time and time again. It's incessant. They, they, They think it's the final argument. They think it just closes the deal. But in actual fact, it simply proves Paul's assertion in this text, professing to be wise, they have become fools. And they revel in the absurd. They revel in a contradiction. If God does not exist, we have no basis for talking about what is good and what is evil. All we can talk about, and this should ring a bell because this is where our society is going, all we can, the only discussion we can have, the only discussion we can engage in is this, personal preference. That's all there is. And we now see personal preference determining the laws in our country. We see personal preference determining people's approach to life. Because if there is no God, there is no good evil. All we are left with is the category of what do I prefer? What works for me? What feels good? What do I think is acceptable? How do I feel about that? And all reasonable discourse, open the window and throw it out. Because there's nowhere to go. People revel in a logical contradiction and think it wins the argument, not realizing that they themselves, with their own words, are proclaiming what they know deep inside to be true, the truth of God. There is a God. There is a day of judgment coming, and the law is written upon the heart. I'm going to skip number four. Number five, the gospel includes the proclamation of impending judgment. Well, that's obvious. Verse 16, on that day, he's referred, he's used that expression before. Go all the way back to verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, those are expressions used in the Old Testament in reference to Israel's idolatry. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for what? On the day. So there's an appointed day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's got the same thing in view now in verse 16. On that day, I've already referenced that day. The day when God's wrath will be revealed, his righteous judgment will be revealed according to my gospel. Interesting that he would insert that there. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The gospel, here it is again, lesson number five, necessarily includes the proclamation of impending judgment. If we aren't preaching judgment, if we aren't preaching the anger of God, the wrath of God, if we are not preaching what the old preachers used to call hell, fire, and brimstone, we are not proclaiming the gospel. It is the starting point of the gospel. God's judgment before God's grace. God's wrath before God's love. 
condemnation before justification. What was it that John Newton said? The goal of preaching is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. The goal of preaching is to break the hard heart so that what? The broken heart might be healed. The proclamation of Paul's gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the starting point is this. It is understanding who and what we are before a holy God. When I feel sick, and I know it's just not a passing cold, something's wrong, or I have a serious injury, and I recognize, well, this is a little perilous, this is a little dubious, I better get some help here, what do I do? I go looking for a doctor. So too when it comes to the gospel. So too when it comes to the healing balm of the gospel. So too when it comes to forgiveness. So too when it comes to the grace and mercy which flow from the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't look for it until we are overwhelmed by our sense of need for it. The starting point is this day, a day known to God alone, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And on that day, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. And he's appointed one as judge, Christ Jesus. Sixth lesson is this, the day of judgment. We just mentioned it in verse 16. The day of judgment will reveal. This is scary. I find it scary. Our deepest secrets. Christ, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes, the purposes of the heart. Here's the question. I, I can't, I couldn't, I was thinking of this this past week. It's a question I've, I often ask. I can't recall ever asking it here from the pulpit. I hope I have. Here it is. I don't think I even need to say anything more than this question to reveal, to impress upon you the gravity of this point that the day of judgment will reveal our deeper secrets. Here it is. Here's the question. If you thought you could get away with it, what would you do? That's it. If you thought you could get away with it, God's just going to turn a blind eye for a little while. There won't be any repercussions. There won't be any consequences. No one will ever know. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, remember from last week, you can take the potion, transform him to Mr. Hyde for the night, and no one would ever know. No embarrassment. No shame. No punishment. No judgment. No pricked or stirred conscience. No sleepless nights. If you thought you could get away with it, what would you do? The answer to that question, my friends, is who we really are. And God is going to judge the secrets of our hearts. Do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Remember who he has in view here. You're you're pointing your finger at people and thinking that somehow, because of your ethnicity or where you were born or the life you've lived, or your church attendance, or the amount of money you've given to the church, or you think somehow it just, it just, it just doesn't involve you. Do you think you will escape the judgment of God when he judges according to the gospel by a man whom he has appointed, Christ Jesus, the secrets of the heart? And here's the seventh lesson, and on this note we must end. Because when the heart is broken, 
We need, we need that healing balm, don't we? Here it is, number seven. The Christian is someone who sees all this clearly. That's it. The Christian is someone who sees all of this clearly. The Christian understands that we might be just in our own eyes. We might be just in the eyes of others. But we are unjust in the sight of God. The Christian sees clearly the blackness of his own heart, the darkness of her own heart. And the Christian echoes that cry out of the book of Job, how can a man be in the right before God? How? There's the question of all questions. How can a man be in the right before God? Knowing what judgment will entail, that it's going to be fair, it's accumulative, it's inescapable, knowing that it's just, knowing that he's going to judge my secrets, knowing that it's impartial, knowing what I now know concerning the judgment of God, How can I escape it? What can a man do to be right before God? And it drives us back where? This is Paul's point all along from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. It's to drive us back where? To chapter 1, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. The just man, the just woman shall live by faith. Seeing things clearly. And perceiving our own depravity and the depth of our sinfulness, we go looking, we go searching, longing and yearning for someone to save us. And we find the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is fixed on him. Our faith is fixed on who he is. The Son of God, eternal Son of God, mediator, standing in that gap between God and us. Our faith is fixed on what he has done. One who has fulfilled that law, whether it was written on tablets or written on our hearts, one who has fulfilled that law, all of its obligations and requirements perfectly. And one who has borne the penalty for me having broken that law perfectly, completely, fully, finally upon Calvary's cross. I now stand just before a holy God not because of anything I've ever said, anything I've ever thought, anything I've ever done. I do not stand just before a holy God because of anything I will ever think or say or do. I am just before a holy God by faith. Faith in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for me. Let me ask a question, a very profound question. You ready? Do you get it? I mean, really, do you get it? Many of us have heard it so many times. Oh, I've heard that so many times. Do we get it? Does it embrace us? Does it overwhelm us? Does it give us an unspeakable joy as we celebrate who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of God's grace alone? Hear it one more time, my friends. The just shall live by faith. Our Father, on that note, we turn to you as always uh, dependent upon you, dependent upon you to send forth your Holy Spirit with unction, to take what has been said, to take your word and to apply it deep within. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst this day. We pray that you would be well pleased with all that has been spoken. 
We pray that you would be gracious and merciful by stirring in our minds and in our hearts and imparting to us a quickening spirit whereby our appreciation of the gospel is heightened. Our appreciation of your grace in Christ Jesus is enlivened. And we seek this from you, asking it in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.